Well, you can turn with me your Bibles to the prophet Hosea chapter 14 as we come to our uh, end of the first minor prophet. We're going to continue in the minor prophets, moving on through Joel and Amos, Obadiah. Uh, I haven't decided, though, if I'm going to stop and do something more incarnational in the evening as well, but we will start Joel at some point soon. Uh, But we're going to finish on a comforting note in the prophet Hosea chapter 14. Uh, We'll begin reading at verse 1. O Israel, return to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take words with you and return to the Lord and say to him, take away all iniquity, receive us graciously, for we will offer the sacrifices of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses, nor will we say any more to the work of our hands, you are our gods, for in you the fatherless finds mercy. I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely, for my anger is turned away from him. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall grow like the lily and lengthen his roots like Lebanon. His branches shall spread. His beauty shall be like an olive tree and his fragrance like Lebanon. Those who dwell under his shadow shall return. They shall be revived like grain and grow like a vine. Their scent shall be like the wine of Lebanon. Ephraim shall say, what have I to do anymore with idols? I have heard and observed him. I am like a green cypress tree. Your fruit is found in me. Who is wise? Let him understand these things. Who is prudent? Let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right. The righteous walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. Amen. Well, let us pray. O Lord our God, we are thankful for the blessing of rest- a blessing of restoration that comes in knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. We are thankful that in him our sins are forgiven in him and because of him we can come and approach you and approach your throne because of our high priest and we're thankful we get to come and offer the sacrifice of praise with our lips. Thank you for this gift that it is to praise your name, to honor you and as we consider your forgiveness, as we consider your love, as we consider what you've done for us, may our praises be enlarged, may our hearts be enlarged, may we be a thankful people recognizing your forgiveness to such undeserving sinners like us. Thank you that you're the one who heals our backsliding. You're the one who loves us according to your free and eternal and infinite love. We're thankful, O Lord, that you cause us to grow and we're thankful that you are our salvation and our fruit is found in you. Our fruit is found in Christ Jesus. And so we ask and pray that you would send forth as your new covenant people, the spirit, uh, the spirit to give us illumination, the spirit to enlighten our minds and better understand what your word says for we need it. And we're thankful for what we can learn. We're thankful for what we can glean. And we pray that we would be nourished as we come and consider your amazing grace to undeserving wretches like us. So we pray that today would be a great day of comfort for your people. We pray that today would be this day of salvation for those that do not know you. And we do pray in all things you would be glorified. And we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, the book of Hosea has been chocked full of serious warnings with vivid pictures that describe both Israel's idolatry, uh, but also what judgment would look like. But thankfully, judgment is really not the last word in the prophet Hosea. Hosea does end with this comforting picture about restoration for a backsliding and a wayward sinner. Israel as a nation is doomed. They will be brought into captivity, led into captivity because of their sins by the hands of Assyria. But thankfully, there is still hope for the remnant people, a true people, even in the old covenant era. 
And so thankfully, captivity is not going to be an end for them. There will be a time when God loves and uh, life with God will be revived. And we know that the people need that. The remnant need this. Because when you consider how wicked Israel is, when you consider the time frame in which uh, Hosea is prophesying, we know that they are a vile and wicked people. We've seen how, we's, uh, we've seen how uh, Hosea, Hosea's marriage to Gomer uh, is a picture of Israel's spiritual adultery, how they have violated God's law, how they've engaged in idolatry and worshipped the Baals rather than the Lord God who brought them up out of the land of Egypt. And so we see what God uh, will do to a wayward wife, what he will do to a wayward son in judgment. But there's also that promise of restoration as well. And so we do come to this final section, this final resolution in the prophet Hosea. And the key themes, the key cycles uh, we see again in this final resolution. We see the exposing of sin in chapter 12. We see the warning about judgment in chapter 13. And then lastly, we do see this prophecy about restoration. And the problem is very clear. Israel is going to be alienated. Israel is going to be separated. Israel is going to be cursed because of their sins, because of their iniquity. Israel had continually worshipped the Baals, had continually alienated themselves from their covenant Lord who brought them out of the land of Egypt. And so what is he going to do? He's going to alienate himself from them. He exposes their sin. He warns about judgment. They can't say they weren't warned. And so judgment in a lot of ways does describe or is described in a lot of ways by way of reversal. God brought them out of the, up out of the land of Egypt, but then they're going to go back to Egypt. But thankfully, the book of Hosea ends on this encouraging picture, what the faithful remnant needs in such a time of moral decay, a picture of grace by way of the reversal of the reversal. They're going to return from captivity. They're going to be brought out of the exodus once again, and they're going to have life with God. And so we see in Hosea 14, we see the prophecy does close on this comforting note. The Lord is gracious to restore those who return. He is gracious to restore those who repent and believe upon him. And so we'll look at this idea of returning to God under three headings this evening. First of all, we'll see the call to return in verses one through three. Second, we'll see the blessing of return in verses four through seven. Then lastly, we'll see the promise of return in verses 8 and 9. So the call to return, the blessing of return, and then the promise of return. So let's first look at the call to return in verses 1 through 3. And we see the call proper in verses 1 and 2. But again, it's good to be reminded of the context. Chapter 12, we see where Israel's strength was. It was in money, it was in idols, it was in Assyria, and the result then is because they're not looking to God for faith, they're not looking to God to be their salvation, instead God is going to judge them, which we see in chapter 13. He's going to judge them for their wickedness. And we saw how vivid that imagery was with lions, leopards, and bears, and all the wartime atrocities that are described uh, to help us uh, be awake and attentive to where, uh, where sin leads, what judgment looks like. And so then this all then paves the way for this final call of restoration, this final call to return in chapter 14. And so we see that invitation, verse 1. O Israel, return to the Lord your God. Now there's been a lot of difficult imagery throughout the book, but there have been many calls and many prophecies concerning the gospel of salvation that would come in the Lord Jesus Christ. We saw restoration for a wicked wife in chapters 2 and 3. 
We saw restoration for a wayward son in chapter 11. We saw resurrection from the dead. The only time in the Old Testament where the third day is prophesied, referring to the Lord Jesus Christ, prophesied explicitly. We're talking about how on that third day, God is going to revive. Then we do, did see a little bit last time as well. I will ransom them from the power of the grave in verse thir uh, chapter 13. I will redeem them from death. O oh, death, I will be your plagues. O grave, I will be your destruction. And so we do see this return once again, this repentance type language, which we already saw in one of those prophecies, one of those calls, one of those pictures that points ahead to the gospel in chapter six. Come, let us return to the Lord. It's as though there is a time when there's a people who wish to return to the Lord. Let us return to the Lord. But in chapter 14, we see it's the Lord, O Israel, return to the Lord your God. We're going to see how what he is going to do. And so the prophet is saying, return to the Lord, return to this one, return to the one who is your God. And we know that the Lord is the one who calls them by way of the prophet, calls them to return, calls them to come, and calls them to come back to the Lord your God. Notice that, uh, that intimate language, your God. No longer are they going to be like the, the, uh, the people around them, the nations around them. They're going to have this restoration again that intimacy shall return. Return to the Lord your God. And the reason they need to return and repent is because of their sin. Repentance is a change of mind concerning sin. And they need to have this change of mind about what that looks like. For you have stumbled because of your iniquity. We see this image of one who walks we know that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. For one to have life everlasting, they must look to Christ, look to him, and walk in his ways. But one who does not believe on Christ, they're walking the other way. They're walking sideways. They're taking a different path. And so we see this image of a path. Israel is walking away from the Lord God Most High. And not only that, they were stumbling. They were tottering. They could not find proper footing. They were stumbling in their way. And a lot of what we've seen throughout the book is restored in chapter 14. But in chapter 4, verse 5, we see how Israel is stumbling. Judah also stumbles in their iniquity. We see in chapter, uh, that's chapter 5, 5. Uh, we see in chapter 4, 5, Therefore, Israel, you shall stumble in the day. The prophet also shall stumble with you in the night. They are willfully ignorant. They are stumbling in the ways in which they walk. But as we're going to see, God is going to restore that. And so God calls them to return, but he also gives us lessons concerning confession. Of, uh, confession. Gives us lessons concerning repentance, how we repent, how we believe. He gives us this language or gives us this lesson in verses 2 and 3. Notice, take your words with you, not by wealth, not by sacrifices, not by Assyria, Bring your words. Bring a broken and a contrite heart. Retake your words with you and return to the Lord. Come to him with your words. And here is then what you ought to say. Notice how the Lord instructs them. He doesn't just command them to return. He tells them, here it is. Here's how you ought to speak. One thing that I was shocked by when I first became a parent and as my children grew is you have to teach a child everything. You have to tell them, don't touch that, don't touch this. You think things that are evident that they would not do. Don't walk with your eyes closed, otherwise you're going to run into a wall. You have to tell them and teach them absolutely everything. So that's what the Lord does here. He talks to us like we're five. 
He talks to us like we're four years old, and he says, here is how you repent. Here is how you confess your sins to me. Here is what you ought to say when you return to the Lord. And we know that one of the images throughout the book is Israel as this wayward son. And so they need it spelled out for them. They need to be told who to look to, but also what to say. And so notice what he says. Here's what you ought to say when you come to the Lord. Take away all iniquity. We know Israel's sin and iniquity has abounded, but here's the Lord instructing them in what to say. Notice, take away all of our iniquity. Take it all away. What does Jesus do when he dies upon the cross? He takes away all of our trespasses, according to Colossians chapter 2. The beautiful thing is when we believe on Christ and we have forgiveness in him, all of our sins are taken away. God has taken away all of our iniquity. He is a God who is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And Israel has a lot of it. When you consider their idolatry, when you consider their adultery, they were not deserving of this. But here is a God who forgives. And even that language of taking away is a good picture of what forgiveness is. When we sin or before we uh, were saved, uh, the picture of sin is it's a burden upon our backs, isn't it? It's heavy. It weighs us down. What does God do when he forgives? He lifts it off of us. He takes it away. He removes that burden and he carries it away. That's the image that we see. That is what forgiveness is. He has taken that heavy burden and lifted it off our backs. Take away all iniquity. And then we ought to say, or the one who returns ought to say, receive us graciously. Now it could be receive our good. Then he goes on to explain what that good is, namely our sacrifice of uh, praise. But it could also be God receive us graciously. Be good to us. Be kind to us. You're the God who is gracious and compassionate. So it's not just a confession of uh, sin, but also a confession of faith. Recognizing who God is and asking God to be who he is. That's what faith is, isn't it? God is gracious and God is good and he forgives. Believe upon him. God, be who you said you would be. Please forgive and also receive us according to your mercy and your goodness and your grace. So God is good. He removes our iniquity and he is gracious to us. We can receive that gift, those gifts that he gives. And notice the purpose. What ought we to do then if we are redeemed and our iniquity is taken away? Well, we ought to be a people who offer the sacrifices of our lips. The purpose is Israel was supposed to worship God, but what was their main problem? Idolatry. They loved the Baals. They loved the Asherahs. They loved any other God that would give them things. And they wanted to worship Yahweh and keep him uh, just in the back pocket in case things didn't go well. They treated God like any other gods. Uh, and so that was their main issue. But here we see that this time, this new era, this picture of restoration, which looks ahead to the time of Christ and the new covenant era, what's going to happen? The people are going to people who give the sacrifice of their lips. They're going to praise God most high. Their words, not their sacrifices. We know they did a lot of sacrificing, didn't they? We see this in Hosea 5 and Hosea 6. They offered bulls and goats, but they did not do it with a broken and a contrite heart. That's why we sang uh, Psalm 51. 
That's why we sang that blessed song about psalm about confession. And specifically in verses 14 through 17, it's not as though we do not offer a sacrifice to God according to his ways, according to worship. But he says in verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. And verse 16, just one verse prior, for you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. But it is this broken spirit and God is the one who breaks us and gives us that broken and contrite heart. But notice verse 19. Then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then they shall offer bulls on your altar. That is, ultimately, we come to God, we praise him, but we praise him according to his ways and according to his word as a people who have been redeemed. And so there is this confession of sin. Take away, receive, so that we might then worship you with our lips, not with our bulls, not with our wealth, not with Assyria, but with praise to God most high. And then notice in verse 3, this confession of where salvation lies. Take away, but notice where salvation lies. It's not Assyria. That's where they went, didn't they? We've seen this in 7, 10, 12. They went to Assyria for help and for aid. Assyria is not going to be their salvation. Assyria is not going to heal them. And as we see that the one they went to for help, God is, does use them as an instrument of judgment. That is, Syria is the one who takes Samaria in 722. They're the superpower at this time, and they will be the ones God uses as an instrument of judgment upon his people. But the new covenant people will recognize it's not Assyria. It's not the government. It's not Babylon. It's not whatever sort of government you want to place there. It's in God. Assyria shall not save. Military might. We will not ride on horses. Horses do not save. We will not trust in princes nor in a son of man, but we will trust in God. Psalm 33. So Assyria doesn't save. Horses do not save. And in the new covenant era, people will recognize, nor will, uh, nor will we say anymore to the work of our hands, you are our gods. What was their problem? They were freaking out over the golden calf. They're freaking about their precious calf being taken away. They were kissing the cows. My little girl got a kick out of that because I don't think she understands what it means. But uh, that's okay. Kissing the calves instead of honoring God most high. That's what they were doing. But what's going to happen in this new covenant era, it is going to be a time where they no longer worship gods. No longer will they say our hands to the work of our hands. You are our gods. And notice the reason why. For in you, God is not like other gods. There are no other gods, but God is not like other gods. For in you, O Lord, the fatherless finds mercy. Why does he refer to the fatherless? Probably because they're most likely to be exploited. That certainly is in view. But it is also the case in the book that the people are orphaning themselves, aren't they? That these people have sinned against God and God will call them what? No mercy. God was going to call them what? Not my people, which is what we see in Hosea 1. But then there's also the reversal of that prophesied in Hosea chapter 2. A people who were once orphans are now going to be adopted. For in you, the fatherless finds mercy. And that language, that word mercy, uh, draws our attention back to that language in Hosea 1 and 2 of no mercy 
not my people, and those who had not obtained mercy, they shall obtain mercy. For it is in God that there is mercy and forgiveness. It is in God where there is salvation. It's in God where our iniquity is and can be taken away. And thankfully, the Lord is the one who calls, and he is the one who forgives. You see, we call this effectual calling. Christ lived, died, and rose again, and the benefits of what Christ has done is applied by the Spirit throughout the centuries. Christ is the right hand in his human nature, but how do we know he's still with us? By the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit then takes those benefits that Christ has done and he applies it. And one of the things that he does is he effectually calls us. The word goes forth. The gospel is proclaimed and the spirit works with the word to save sinners, but also to strengthen his people. We know that repentance is a gift. Acts chapter 5. We are given the gift to repent, to turn from our idols. We know that faith is a gift. Ephesians chapter 2, it is the gift of God. We cannot boast in that, uh, in ourselves or in our ways, but we boast in God. It is God who calls. It is God who gives. But God also explains for us how we approach unto him. And brethren, as we still have to struggle with remaining corruption in this world, we have repentance unto life, but we're going to repent often. We're going to repent probably daily. We're going to repent probably hourly because we still struggle with remaining corruption. And look what God has given to us. Here's how you ask for forgiveness. You have Hosea 14. You have Psalm 51. Lord, blot out my, uh, my uh, transgressions according to your tender mercies. Wash me and I shall be white as snow. Create in me a clean heart. All those blessed prayers for us to pray when we struggle with sin. And we all struggle with sin. Or even Luke chapter 18, when we see the, the publican, he's saying, Lord, have mercy upon me. Lord, forgive me. God lays out very clearly how we ought to speak to him. He lays out clearly how we ought to pray to him. He lays out clearly how we ought to issue that call, what the preacher's supposed to do, what, how we call a sinner to believe, but also uh, we see that how we respond to that, and it is God who brings it. God effectually calls. God effectually works. God is the one who makes his people willing in the day of his power. He takes those who are orphans, and he does not leave them orphans. John chapter 14. Come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The Lord calls. The Lord is good. The Lord is gracious. And if you're struggling with sin, repent. He is good. He is gracious. First John 1 says, confess your sins to him, and he is faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. God is good, and we need to be reminded of that in Hosea 14. But also, we know that we have been redeemed for a specific purpose. God is good. God who calls us, he calls us out of darkness into marvelous light to be what? A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people to give praise to him. And that is exactly what we see in Hebrews 13, verse 15. Hebrews 13, 15, you can turn there, alludes back to Hosea 14, 2. I'd love to go through the book of Hebrews. It's just the hardest book in Greek, so maybe I'm just putting it off because I'm scared. But 
Um, Hebrews 13 is full of, or Hebrews, the entire book is filled with rich uh, discussion about who Jesus is, how he's the mediator of a far better covenant. And then in chapter 13, he talks about how we live, what are some religious directions for the people of God. And so we've come to the heavenly places in Christ. We've come to the most holy place in Jesus Christ. We've come to the new Jerusalem in Christ. And so we see our, our, our home is not of this world. And so we see in verse 13, Therefore let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach, for we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. The old has been done away with. The new has come. Therefore, verse 15, by him, by Christ, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. But do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. What is our chief aim? To glorify God. What is our chief purpose? To praise his name. And the primary place we do that is when we gather as the saints, as we worship him, and thankfully we shall worship him, world without end, because the Lord is the one who calls a people and restores a people, saves a people to himself. So that is the call to return. Let's then look secondly at the blessing of return in verses 4 through 7. The blessing of return. And notice we see the Lord who loves in verse 4. We saw in chapter 9, 15 that the Lord does not love. He says, all their wickedness is in Gilgal, for there I hated them. Because of the evil of their deeds, I will drive them from my house. I will love them no more. What's God going to do according to the new covenant? He's going to love. And we see he's going to heal. I will heal their backsliding. I will heal their walking away from me. Same language that we see with this language of returning, but it's used in a different way here. I will heal their turning away from me. I will heal their backsliding. They are walking the other way, but God is going to direct them back into that proper way. And we see this language of healing in chapter 5, verse 15, that moves into chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. We see Ephraim, we see Israel is going to Assyria, but God says he cannot cure you. You're going to one that you try, you're trying to find your, uh, to fi- try to find help, but he cannot cure you, uh, nor heal any of your wound. God is going to tear, God is going to rend, it's going to be a mortal wound. But then they will seek my face. In their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. Verse 6, come and let us return, or sorry, chapter 6, verse 1, come let us return to the Lord, for he has torn, but he will heal. He has stricken, but he will bind us up. After two days, he is the one who will, who will revive us. And on the third day, he will raise us up that we may live in his sight. Let us return. Let us return to him because in him there is healing. And here's the assurance and the blessing. I will heal them. I will love them freely. A people who are so unlovable, they shall be lovable because I shall make them lovable. I shall make them pure. I shall make them spotless based upon my doing. So the Lord loves. And it's a vivid description here of how we see such an unlovely sinner, such an unlovely person, such an unlovely uh, loving wife, an unlovely son in this entire book vile, awful, wicked. God hated their deeds, and yet God is going to love a people. 
a people. He's going to heal their backsliding. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned away from him. His anger is kindled in Hosea 8.5. Your calf is rejected, O Samaria. My anger is aroused against them. How long until they attain? How long must I bear with their innocence, which they don't actually have? And so we see God's anger is kindled. God is angry with the wicked every day, but in someone, in Christ who is the propitiation. Propitiation just means the turning away of the wrath of God, the turning away of the anger of God. We see that in the new covenant era, my anger has turned away from him. That's true if you're in Christ. God's anger that was once upon you is now turned away. He loves his people. He heals his people. And notice he's going to cause his people to grow. He's going to refresh his people. And we see more garden-like imagery in verses 5 through 7. Notice we see the dew of Israel. I will be like the dew to Israel. We've already seen the dew. Hosea 6 and Hosea 13, we've seen how Israel is like the dew. They just kind of like that morning dew that just goes away quickly. Their love is like that. They will be like that. They will be no more. But there's another way to take the image of dew. And dew was the way in which the ground, the way in which the vegetation was kept uh, hydrated in the dry season because they didn't have any rain. And so it was the water, it was the dew that refreshed them. It was the dew that caused uh, the vegetation to grow. So God is going to be that. I will be like the dew to Israel. I will be the one who refreshes. I will be the one who causes you to grow. Yahweh is that due for his people. It's the blessing that he gives to those who look to him. We see what confession looks like. We see how we approach God, but then we see what he is going to do. He is going to love us. He's going to heal. He is going to cause his people to grow. And the prophet spends some time here talking about what this looks like, the growth of Israel, the growth of the people of God. They're going to be a growing people in the things of God. Verse 5, he shall grow like the lily and lengthen his roots like Lebanon. Uh, Lebanon was renowned for its fertility. That's why it's mentioned a lot uh, in the Bible. That was a place people would have known, this fertile place, this lush place. And God's people shall be greater than that. They shall be like that. They shall be like the lily that grows and that lengthens its root like Lebanon. We saw in 9.16 that the root is going to dry up. They shall bear no fruit. They shall have nothing. Ephraim is stricken. The root is diseased. But then we see in the new covenant, God is going to cause to grow. That she's going to will be lengthened. The root shall grow. They shall spread a growing people. But not just a growing people who have roots like Lebanon, but she's going to be an acceptable people a beautiful people, a people who are presented uh, to God spotless. And so we see his branches shall spread. It's not her language. Whenever I talk about beauty, I always want to refer to the her, but I guess men can be beautiful too. His branches shall spread. His beauty shall be like an olive tree and his fragrance shall be like Lebanon, a beautiful olive tree accepted before God. Uh, the olive was used as a primary source of income, primary source of trade for the people. So they would have known what this meant. She shall, he shall be, uh, her, his branches shall spread. They shall grow. His be beauty shall be like an olive tree and his fragrance. He shall be acceptable to God. Beautiful and acceptable. Beautiful and smelling nice. Beautiful and smelling 
good towards God. She shall, he shall be an acceptable people, a people who are beautiful, a people who are spotless. And then he shall also be a useful people in God's house, a remembered people, verse 7. Those who dwell under his shadow shall return. Notice those who dwell under his shadow. It's not just passing. They live there. They shall dwell under his shadow shall return. They shall be revived like the grain. They shall grow like a vine. Their scent or remembrance shall be like the wine of Lebanon. They are a people who are special. They are people who are remembered. They are people who are not forgotten. And thankfully, it's a people who have repented that shall receive this. There was a time in 11.5 where he does say, the prophet says, he shall not return to the land, but the Assyria shall be his king because they refuse to repent. What shall be happened to those who repent? They shall be a growing people, an acceptable people, and a remembered people. And thankfully, God does remember his people. Our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. We are not blotted out from the Lamb's book of life. And wine like Lebanon. A lot of this language is used to describe that very thing, this remembrance. Um, Don't know much more than that, but just Lebanon was well known. The wine was well known, the grain, all that sort of stuff. But it's used to describe what the people of God shall be as they are blessed by God who is their due. Now, all this is meant to teach us the blessing we receive from God. Namely, the Lord is the one who does refresh his people. God's people receive love. We know that it's not based upon anything good within us. It's not that we love God, but that he first loved us. But at Christ's finished work, his completed work, he gives us, the Spirit applies all the benefits. We need to be righteous before God. We need to be not guilty. We have that in justification. We need to be pure and holy. We have that in sanctification. We need a heavenly body. We have that promise in glorification, everything God has given to us. But also, we will grow. John 15 talks about how Jesus is the true vine, and all those who are in the true vine shall and do grow in him. If one is not in the true vine, what happens? They are pruned. They are cut off because they are not connected to the root where there is life. They're not connected to the Christ where there is life and where they grow. And even as we walk this world, brethren, how do we continually grow in the things of God? Well, we grow in Christ and we grow in Christ as he speaks to us. We saw this in Colossians 1, as the people of God continually bear fruit. It shouldn't surprise us that the fruit of the Spirit is called just that, the fruit of the Spirit as we grow in Christ Jesus, boasting in him and not in ourselves. Christ is the one who makes us grow. We look to him as the author and perfecter of our faith. And so how do we grow? By being connected to the true vine. And we are connected to the true vine. We are connected to him by faith. But we grow in the ways that the master gardener, the true vine has given to us with respect to how we ought to grow and what we ought to look like as the people of God. Henry says, note, God's promises pertain to those and those only that dwell under the church's shadow, that attend on God's ordinances and adhere to his people, not those that flee to that shadow only for shelter in a hot gleam, but those that dwell under it. Those that dwell under the shadow of the church shall return. Their drooping spirit shall return and they shall be refreshed and comforted. He restores my soul. 
They shall revive as the corn, which, when it is sown, dies first and then revives and brings forth much fruit. It is promised that God's people shall be blessings to the world as corn and wine are, and a very great and valuable mercy it is to be serviceable to our generation. Comfort and honor attend to it. The Lord refreshes us, the Lord causes us to grow, and we grow by way of his means that he has given to us, and we grow in Christ as we look to him and be comforted in the blessings that we have in him. So that's the blessing of return. Let's then look thirdly and finally at the promise of return in verses 8 and 9. I think what we see in verse 8 is what Yahweh will do. I think Yahweh is that cypress tree here, but there could be several ways to take verse 8. Now, the New King James says, Ephraim shall say, what have I to do any more with idols? So it's Ephraim speaking. I actually do think it should be, O Ephraim, what have I to do anymore with idols? So it's evocative. O Ephraim, like we see in verse 1, O Israel, because even the New King James adds the shall say. It's a, it's a difficult verse to translate, but I think O Ephraim makes sense. O Ephraim, what have I to do anymore with idols? What God is saying is there is no God like me. I see you. I hear you. I observe. Do they? Do those gods listen? Do those gods hear? Do those gods understand? I will hear your repentance and I will observe your ways. Do they? Will they hear you when you come to repent to them? Will they hear you when you come to ask for them? God is the one who hears. Oh, Ephraim, what have I to do anymore with idols? I have heard and I observe you. I am like that green cypress tree. I am this one of renown in whom there is life. And one thing that's interesting is that cypress trees typically don't bear fruit. And notice it's in God. Your fruit is found in me, not in idols. Your fruit is found in what I will do for you. I am your source. I am your strength. I am the one who will provide for you. He has promised this. He's shown us what we ought to say when we come to him in repentance. He shows us and teaches us what he's going to do for us. But he also assures us it is going to happen. I will be the ground of your fruit. I will be the one in whom your fruit is found in. I am your cypress tree. I am the one who will bring it to pass. And you shall be a people who walks in righteousness. And then in verse 9, we come to the final charge, really, by way of questions probably bring it home to the contemporary generation. It's pointing ahead to the new covenant era, pointing ahead to Christ and the restoration found in him. But he's bringing it home to the people at the time that he is prophesying. Who is wise? Well, we saw in chapter 313 that they're not that wise. He is an unwise son. Who is wise? Let him understand these things. Who is prudent? Let him know them. What was another one of Israel's problems at this time? They did not know. They did not know God. They thought they knew God. They thought they were worshiping him aright, but they were wrong in their worship. And the result is they did not know God. Let him, who is wise, who is prudent. What is wisdom? It is fearing the Lord. What is understanding? It is shunning evil. That is what wisdom and understanding is. And Israel was not doing that. 
but those of the new covenant era do that thing in Christ Jesus. And so there is this warning, this call, this uh, question to cause the people to stop and examine. Who is wise? Who is prudent? Let him understand, let him know these things that are spoken of in this word. And he goes on to explain the final reason. For the ways of the Lord are right. Walk in his ways. His ways are right. That path imagery comes up once again. The righteous walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. We do not need to totter. We know the way. We know the path. And we know that that path is in Jesus. Even use, uh, the old covenant people, Deuteronomy 8, even for that old covenant era, walk in my ways. Deuteronomy 10, walk in my ways. Deuteronomy 11, walk in my ways. Deuteronomy 19, walk in my ways. What did Israel not do? They did not walk in his ways. And as a result, they are going to fall. As a result, they are going to stumble. As a result, they're going to be sent into captivity. But thankfully, there is mercy in Christ. The new covenant is far better than the old. That's why the writer uh, to the Hebrews says, Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant. For the ways of the Lord are right. The righteous walk in them, but the transgressor stumbles in them. It seems right to man, but his way leads to death. It's a very sad picture of one who is not in Christ, this transgressor who's stumbling, who's wandering aimlessly. They do not know where they are going. They're tripping over God's ways, not knowing uh, what is the right path. But I can tell you today, the right path is to look to Christ. Believe upon him and you shall be saved because he is the way, the truth, and the life. His ways are good. His ways are kind. His ways are right. And the way to come and be united to him is through faith in Christ. To have life in him, to have forgiveness of sins, it comes only in Christ Jesus. And for the believer, you're redeemed in Christ. We're not going to do it perfectly, but our command is to walk in his ways. I mean, we see that very clearly in the Bible. Fear him, keep his commandments. And one of the most blessed promises is, is Jesus will always be near to us when we walk this world. He'll forgive us when we fall. He'll forgive us for our sins. He'll help us when we need strength. He will be with us. He will never leave us nor forsake us. Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, if you're an unbeliever here today, as we've already said, please look to Christ. He forgives. He heals. He will love if you look to him. There really is amazing grace in this book. And certainly that amazing grace should be more exalted, should be more uh, clear when we see how wicked and vile Israel has been. Then we can see God's amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saves and restores wretches like us. Well, let us pray. Our good and gracious God, we are thankful for this promise of restoration. We're thankful that that promise comes in and through the work of our Christ. Thank that he was the one who was raised upon that third day. Thank you that it's in him he brings forth or he uh, purchases a people uh, who had not obtained mercy but now have obtained mercy. Thank you that that's in him. Thank you that he is the bride and we are the bridegroom. Thank you for his love for us and his dying and rising again for such undeserving sinners. 
And we're thankful that all the benefits that he has purchased are applied to us. Thank you for the gift of repentance. Thank you for the gift of faith. Thank you for the gift of justification, sanctification, perseverance. Uh, thank you for the promise of glorification. All these things we have because of what he has done. And thank you for your clarity. Thank you that you do speak to us as if we are children and we are very young, ignorant, uh, unwise children, but you are good. So thank you that you teach us what we ought to say when we pray. Thank you that you teach us what we ought to say when we confess our sins. Thank you that you teach us and remind us of the promises that we have and the blessings that we have in you. And we're thankful that we who once were wayward have been restored. We who once um, had, were sinning and under your wrath, your anger has been turned away. Thank you for the blessing it is to return to you by faith. And so we ask and pray for any here today who do not know you, please help them, please save them, please give them new hearts. Please call them out of darkness and into marvelous light that they might be part of the people of God, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, uh, a people who are called to give praise to you. So may we do that. May we praise your name. May we honor you. And may we consider your goodness, especially as we go into the world once again. Give us the strength that we need as pilgrims along the way. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for your grace. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.